0: Uh, Good morning to all of you. Uh, In particular, welcome to uh, Foreign Minister of Iran, uh, Mr. Sarif. This summer has been very intense in uh, the Persian Gulf. The US applies a strategy of uh, maximum pressure on Iran and its partners. This involves heavy sanctions and uh, pressure, not least on your economy. Iran, on their side, has also upping the game somehow. And now you've spent the last few days on a Nordic round trip. So, why don't we start with the kind of question of what do you expect to come out of this Nordic round trip and how does it fit into your long term goal?
1: Well, first of all, it's good to be with all of you and uh, thank you for your invitation. Happy to be here again. I came here about three, four years ago under very difficult, different circumstances. Um, the United States is not engaged in sanctions against Iraq, because sanctions uh, are designed to enforce a law. Uh, what the United States is enforcing is illegality, because countries are called upon by a United Nations Security Council resolution, which the United States sponsored and voted for, uh, that cause on countries to uh, normalize their business relations with Iraq. In fact, the United States punishes countries for normalizing business relations with Iraq. So they cannot be called sanctions, because sanctions are supposed to enforce the law, not break the law. Second, they're not economic sanctions, again, because they're targeting civilian population. Secretary Pompeo is on the record saying that if Iran wants its people to to eat, then it has to follow what we say. That's called extortion. And if you look at the definition of terrorism in Google, it's called terrorism, because terrorism is to use violence or intimidation in order against civilian population in order for them to change their political course. So the United States is putting pressure, trying to intimidate civilian population of Iran in order for them, as Secretary Pompeo again has said, to peacefully change their government. That is called terrorism, pure and simple, and extortion. The United States is also preventing Iran from enjoying freedom of navigation. The ship that was seized by British authorities in Gibraltar, not because of EU sanctions, but because of U.S. requests, it was clear because Ambassador Bolton, the day the ship was seized, said, this is the best 4th of July present that UK could have ever given to the United States. So it's clear who asked for it, and since it's release, it's clear who is trying to seize it again. Uh, EU sanctions do not apply to third countries. Iran's oil is not sanctioned by the EU, and the destination of oil was not Syria, but even if, if it were Syria, was none of UK's business because uh, we're not an EU member. So freedom of navigation is being trampled upon by the United States. Right now, as that ship is moving in the Mediterranean, the United States is preventing it from carrying its business. Selling of Iranian oil is not illegal in international law. We have every right to sell our oil. The European Union has made commitments after U.S. withdrawal that Iran will be able to sell its oil. So you cannot implement international law unilaterally. Everybody has to be involved in implementing international law because the only way you can guarantee respect for international law is through reciprocity, is through expectations that others also respect international law. If people believed, if countries believed that others will not respect international law, they would have no incentive to respect international law themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the theoretical base of respect for international law. That's Mm -hmm. how international law is respected, because people do things in the expectation of the same thing happening to them. Now, Iran is the greatest power in the Persian Gulf. We have 1,500 miles of coastline on the uh, on the coast of Persian Gulf. We have 1,500 miles of coastline uh, on the Sea of Oman, or the Gulf of Oman, however you want to call it. The Omanis like to call it Sea of Oman. Uh, And we control half of the Strait of Hormuz. Now, it is impossible to have security in the Persian Gulf and the Sea of Oman and the Strait of Hormuz without Iraq. You can certainly not have security at the expense of insecurity of Iran. Hmm. This should be very clear to everybody. So bringing naval vessels to the Persian Gulf with the clear aim of confronting Iran will not secure the Persian Gulf. That's obvious. You want security in the Persian Gulf, you have to have security for everybody. And Iran depends on the Persian Gulf. There are only three countries that depend on the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz for their entire livelihood. It's Iran, Kuwait, and Qatar. That's our only way out. Others have alternative routes, mm. either pipelines or other alternative routes. Our only route is the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz. So we have every interest in keeping it safe, but it has to be safe for everybody. Mm. We are prepared to engage with those who are interested in safety, but, but we're not prepared to simply accept the United States to bully us. I don't know why, with all due respect, the European Union and other members of the of Europe, other countries in Europe, allow the United States to bully them. Mm. And I'll tell you why. Because the United States, the OFAC, the Office of Foreign Asset Control, is the executioner because that is the entity that is imposed, that imposes sanctions and punishments on European firms for not violating international law, but for observing international law. And European firms are going to OPAC in order to ask for request to observe international law. And it turns them down. And they continue to go. Mm. I mean, I'm bewildered by this. Americans say that food and medicine are exempt from their sanctions. European companies nevertheless go to OFAC to seek permissions for food and medicine. Last year, 1,500 requests, but this is OFAC information. So there is a general license, there is a general waiver for food and medicine, supposedly. But European companies want to be confident, so they go and request for license for food and medicine that has a general license. They have made 1,500 requests. Only 500 has been granted. And in the meantime, US sales of corn and soybeans to Iran has quadrupled over the last year. That I call bullying. We will not submit ourselves to bullying. If others want to submit themselves to bullying, then they should not expect us to go along.
0: Thank you so much. Uh,
1: We we will return to the issue of shipping a bit later
0: uh, and maritime security. But uh, during this summer, we have seen uh, drones have been attacked, shut down, vessels have been uh, captured. Um, President Trump has apparently called off last minute attack on Iran. So, Mr. Sarif, what is the main security concern? you see now, and uh, is there a risk for war
1: in the Persian Gulf, as you see it? Well, uh, you see, we did not attack a drone in the Gulf of Mexico. There is a reason it's called Persian Gulf, and there is a reason we remind people it's not called the Gulf, because it is the Persian Gulf, it is next to us. And maybe people need to be reminded, and maybe they use the Gulf in order to forget about the fact that it is right there, that we have the coastline. The drone was shot with an Iranian missile very close to our security zone, inside our airspace over our territorial waters. And not disputed territorial waters, undisputed, because there are parts of our territorial waters in the Persian Gulf that has i mean there are there are disputes over them because of the uh, of the baseline but here it was undisputed Iranian territorial waters and Iranian airspace so we defended our territory we did not go uh, next to the florida coast to shoot anybody uh, it was our coast uh, the united states wants to engage in Uh, adventurous behavior in our region, and we will respond. The reason President Trump called off the uh, retaliation, uh, uh, I think you need to ask him why he called it off, but we sent him a message uh, that it would be the beginning and not the end, and it would involve further hostility. See, we have shown that we're not interested in war. We have shown that we're interested in negotiations. We even negotiated with the United States. No country has engaged in more negotiations with the United States than Iran. Over two years, Secretary Kerry and I spent more time together than we spent with any other foreign minister, even with our wives. <laughs> but I mean, we produced a document that is 150 pages long. We dealt with every detail. So we're not afraid of negotiations. I sat in front of seven foreign, six foreign ministers and the European Union high Representative, And we engaged with them. We engaged with them bilaterally. We engaged with them multilaterally. We negotiated a fine piece of document that deals with everything, including how to address violations. The United States decided all of a sudden to withdraw from that and to, Co- to do what they call maximum pressure, even President Trump calls it economic war. President Trump himself has called maximum pressure economic war, and we don't, this, we don't consider the meaning of that. Economic war is a war where civilians are the main targets, not uh, collateral damage. They're the main targets of an economic war. Our people are being c- confronted with, with this war. Whether there will be a war in, in Persian Gulf, I can tell you, we will not start that war. We have not started a war against anybody in 250 years. But those who have started wars against us have not been very happy about the outcome. Look at what Saddam is right now. He enjoyed the support of everybody in the world. Everybody believed that Iran would collapse in seven days when he invaded us. Everybody supported him. From MiG fighters from the Soviet Union, to AVAX reconnaissance from United States, to chieftain tanks from Britain, to Exocet uh, missiles and Mirage fighters from France, to chemical weapons from Germany, to Silkworm missiles from China. Everybody made sure that they supported him. Saudi Arabia paid him $75 billion. He used that money and those weapons after he failed with Iran against Kuwait. That's the lesson that we should draw from history. Genghis Khan invaded Iran. Alexander invaded Iran. Where are they? We are still (laughs) Iran. We have been been around for 7,000 years. We will be around for another 7,000 years in the same place as civilized people. We have had, we've been city dwellers in Iran since 7,000 years ago. We have not been engaged in other uh, type of activity during our history. Hmm. We've been here. We will stay here. We will defend ourselves. We will not start a war. But however many ships come to our region, we still hold greater firepower and we advise against trying to secure freedom of navigation in the persian gulf through the use of military force this is a tiny body of water it cannot it cannot sustain normal free navigation and a lot of military ships there is no reason for a lot of military ships you can have security in the Persian Gulf, through cooperation, through engagement, through inclusion, not through exclusion. You cannot exclude the biggest or at least the longest shoreline in the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz and the Sea of Oman from a security arrangement and expect to have security.
0: Mm. Uh, Even if Iran and also I think President Trump would not prefer to have a war. This, uh, this is a high-risk environment. Accidents might happen. You might have uh, unexpected escalation, uncertainties, and counter-reactions to that. So then the question is, what kind of mechanism is there in place for communication and to prevent unwanted escalation in this kind of environment? So. So what kind of communication, since there's nobody here, uh, maybe you can share. What kind of communications do you have with Americans? You said you have sent them a warning. But what kind of communications do you really have?
1: Well, we have uh, the Swiss ambassador who in Tehran who acts as the U.S. Uh, representative. Uh, the uh, U.S. section in Iran is hosted by the Swiss government. So when we need to send an immediate message, we will send it through the Swiss. In the past, we had direct communication between myself and Secretary Kerry so we could communicate directly since Secretary Kerry left office. They broke communication with Iran. It wasn't us breaking communications with them. Uh, so this, this stopped. Uh, actually, we were uh, in the same room, negotiating in the same room through the JCPOA until April 2018. Meeting every three months, our deputies had their pho- had each other's phone numbers, uh, could communicate. But the United States decided all of a sudden to leave the room, uh, and I and I believe the United States is interested in exacerbating tension. Uh, we have a saying in Farsi: "If if you're asleep, I can wake you up. But if you pretend to be asleep, I can never wake you up." The United States wants to escalate. I know that President Trump does not want war, but I know that people around him who who thirst for war, who have done everything possible. I mean, President Trump himself said that there is no war in the world that Ambassador Bolton doesn't want to get involved in. <laughs> I mean, this is not me talking, this is President Trump talking. Mm. Uh,
0: OK, so, so that's the immediate, let's uh, say, management of the crisis. But Returning a bit to my first question about why you're in the Nordic countries, so about – because this is a high-risk situation, as we said, but it's also detrimental, I think, to international relations in general and also to the countries involved in the situation somehow. So how do you – what do you expect to be the outcome of the situation? Where do you see the way forward? You have, you have turned down, as I understand, an offer by President Trump to engage in negotiations. No. Uh, no. Prime Minister Abe uh, visited Tehran. And he, I don't know, but uh, I understood that he also was kind of stretching out the hand to say, okay, is this something? And he also sent a letter, I th-
1: brought with him a letter. No, he didn't bring a letter. Okay, he okay. A but, but where, where is, th- wh- let, where me, do you let see me put this negotiation in perspective and maybe uh, something that uh, sounds like a joke will uh, tell you what this negotiation is about uh, about four weeks ago when I was in New York for a for not not for bilateral uh, but for for a United Nations meeting on sustainable development uh, somebody came to see me uh, and he said I spoke to President Trump and he invited you to come to the Oval Office for discussions with President Trump himself. And he also said uh, that the decision has been made to designate you, meaning to sanction you, in two weeks. Now that's a hell of a way to invite somebody to negotiate, <laughs> saying that you'll be sanctioned in two weeks unless you come to the White House and as a foreign minister we meet with the President of the United States. Uh, sort of like putting a gun at your head and saying, "Okay, come and dance with me, (laughs) otherwise I'll kill you. (laughs) Um, This is the type of offer that we're getting from the United States. As I told you, we were sitting at the negotiating table. We did negotiate with the United States. Now, it's not any of our business that the government changed in the U.S. And last I checked, and I'm sure you have, There wasn't a revolution in the United States. There was only an election in the United States. And what the previous government agreed to is not a bilateral agreement, but it's a part of a Security Council resolution. And again, last I checked, the United States is sitting in the Security Council. Secretary Pompeo was there yesterday or the day before yesterday as a permanent member. So this is a Security Council resolution, 150 pages of document that was negotiated word for word. And there were given takes on every word of it. And now, all of a sudden, President Trump comes and tells us that I don't like that document. I want something, a new document called Trump document. Now, who, which self-respecting country will go and renegotiate? You don't buy the horse twice. We we bought this horse, we paid the money for it. A lot of our, I mean, Europeans talk about their private companies. A lot of Iranian private companies went bankrupt because we implemented our commitments. So nobody else is implementing. Does it mean that we have to renegotiate? We said when we were negotiating the nuclear deal that if the United States implemented its part of the bargain, it would give us confidence to engage in other areas with Mm -hmm. the U.S. So this was a litmus test for us. Even the Obama administration did not perform very well, but the Trump administration has flatly withdrawn from from the agreement. Why should we renegotiate? What is there to renegotiate? This is not a general agreement that we go and discuss the details. We have put every detail on the paper, including what to do if you disagree. But the United States could have used that option. The United States could have brought its areas of um, uh, reservation to the table and discussed it.
0: So you suggest that there's nothing to negotiate on, and there's no way f- us somehow to, to go. The no? U.S. says there is not... No, I'm not
1: suggesting that there's nothing to negotiate on, nor there's no place further to go. First of all, this is a multilateral agreement, and the United States is only one party to this agreement, and I believe Europe, China, Russia are other parties, and uh, I I think the rest of the international community wants this agreement to uh, to stand, and I believe the rest of the international community has the power to make this stand. I, I believe the United States is working... Uh, pushing its agenda by bullying. Let's just imagine that tomorrow, instead of Iran, they'll tell you not to do business with China. What do you want to do then? Whatever you want to do then, do it now, because a bully will not stop bullying until you stand up against them. Hmm. A bully will be even more uh, interested and uh, inclined to bully when they can get one I mean, uh, you all remember your high school bullies. They started with the smallest kid on the block. And when they could beat him, they would go one stage higher. And then one stage higher. And one stage higher. By the time they become bully in the class, and nobody would be able to say anything about it. This is what the United States is doing. Now, the United States Secretary of State said in in Brussels that there are three great powers that we need to deal with. We don't consider ourselves a great power. I think the, We think the era, the era of great powers is long gone. But he said China, Russia, and Iran. Now, it's, they start with the least of the great powers, but the, the next stop will be Russia and China. Now, you have differences with Russia, but you have a lot of trade with China. Just imagine that the bully will come and tell you that if you do business with China, you cannot do business with the United States. That if your banks open lines of credit for the Chinese or get lines of credit from the Chinese, they won't be able to do business in the United States. This day will come. I can assure you that this day will come. I know from the Reagan era that Trump is a new trend in the United States, and you cannot simply hope that this trend will end. You either decide to withstand this or this will continue. So Europe has a choice. It's not that you simply lay back and say, this is our private sector. No, this is not your private sector. This is our own future, everybody's future. That's number one. Number two, the United States, of course, if it has no reason to come back, they won't. But if it's pressure, either friendly pressure or uh, whatever other type of pressure, They have to come back to the negotiating table. They have painted themselves in a corner. They do not like anything that Obama has done. And it's not just Iran. They withdrew from, I mean, INF was not something that Obama had done, it was something that Reagan had done. But they withdrew from INF, they withdrew from everything else, they withdrew from UNESCO, they withdrew from Human Rights Council, they withdrew from the Climate uh, Convention. And if they say that JCPOA was not ratified by Congress, INF was. NAFTA was, UNESCO was. So, I mean, it's just the lawless nature of a government. And I believe the Europeans need to stand up. If the United States wants to simply stop pressuring Iran, to simply stop. And if they don't want to come back to the nuclear deal, it's their option. But they need to stop putting pressure on Iran because putting pressure on Iran usually backfires. But Iranians are allergic to threats and pressure. Iranians respond very well to kindness, to respect, but they respond very badly to pressure and threats.
2: But uh,
0: you're a very experienced diplomat. So, uh, and uh, it's asking Europeans to kind of side with Iran against. The U.S. I think, in is in a choice between the U.S. and Iran, I think few European countries would.
1: Choose it's not a choice Iran. between U.S. No. and Iran. Right. it's a choice. It's it's a choice between a future of being told to violate international law, otherwise you'll be punished. I'm not asking Europe to make a choice. This, I mean, the way you define a problem, tells you the way you answer the problem. You have all defined the problem. This is a choice between Iran and the United States, and obviously you choose the United States. But it's not a choice between Iran and the United States. I'm portraying an image for you that out of 35 years of experience with the United States, living in the U.S. for 30 years, I know that that's, that portrayal is going to be in front of you within five, two, three, four, five years. Now, you look at that, that prospect. It's not a choice between Iran and the United States. I don't want you to make choices between Iran and any country. We will live with ourselves. We are least dependent. I mean, when we shot down the the American drone, we shot it down not with with an S-300. We shot it down with an Iranian missile. We wanted to send the message that in order to defend ourselves, we don't need anybody. So don't do it for us. It's not a favor. We're not a basket. We're, I mean, this, this is not, Iran is not a basket case. We're a rich country. Your best engineers in the best are Iranian origin. So we don't, we don't need anybody choosing us instead of the United States. We want you to make a choice on international law. We want you to make a choice on your commitments. We want you to make a choice on whether you want to be bullied or not. Of course I know that you won't choose between Iran and the United States, and favor Iran. That's why, I don't, that's why I don't present the problem in that case, because I would know the answer. I'm asking you to make a choice about your own future, because this is your own future. The United States, you see, listen to me. The United States is asking you to violate international law, and is telling you that I'll punish you. If you observe international law, now tomorrow they can ask you to violate another international law, because Security Council Resolution 2231 is very clear, and it's a part of international law, and it's not been uh, rejected by the Security Council yet. It's not been nullified by the Security Council yet. It is there. The United States is asking you to violate it.
0: Yeah, but you know that you know this very well. But in the European economies. Governments cannot decide everything. Market operators make their choices about w- what kind of countries they would like to trade with, what, w- what kind of mechanisms they would like to exchange their currencies through, etc. So uh, so even if European politicians try to establish this mechanism that they have established, uh, a lot of companies probably would not use it. And I understand it. Uh, the, uh, this. Uh, financial mechanism is something that both the U.S. find uh, some kind of point of irritation and also Iranian, I think, find it insufficient and incomplete. Isn't that right? No, you see, Europeans... So you're asking uh, for something that the Europeans your, the, the first probably part,
1: will not give. The, the, the fir- let me answer the first part and then the second part. Uh, the first part is, Europeans have a blocking statute. You're not, you're not a member of... EU, but EU has a blocking statute. Within the EU? Yeah. yeah. Unanimity on foreign policy. No, no, no. Blocking statute against anybody observing U.S. sanctions. They enacted that blocking statute last, uh, it was, I think, if if I'm not mistaken, last August against companies deciding to go along with U.S. sanctions. This is European law. They haven't implemented that blocking statute against a single European company. You have the legal system. You're saying it's not your policy to intervene with the private sector, but you have a law. It's called the blocking statute. Not you, the European Union. Why don't they implement their own law? That's number one. Question number one. Would European law be subservient to U.S. law? Uh, That's a question. Number two, instex. Europe made 11 commitments to Iran. Purchase of oil, repatriation of oil money, navigation, aviation, investment, and six other commitments. It's fulfilled none. Instex is a prerequisite for some of those commitments. Not even among those commitments. It took Europe, up till now, 16 months, because Europe worked on a central bank mechanism from May till December, or November of last year, only to find out that OFAC would not allow it. Now, since November, it's working on another mechanism. Now, is OFAC the determining factor? Because last time, OFAC was a determining factor. And you already know that the Americans don't like it. So if you want to wait for an American approval of INSTEX, I'm confident it won't be coming. Because Americans have a policy of maximum pressure. Americans do not have a policy of allowing, if you want to get their permission, that permission will not be forthcoming. Hmm. So it's up to the Europeans to decide. No, we will welcome INSTEX. We welcome Norway joining INSTEX, but it depends on how you want to deal with INSTEX. Do you want INSTEX to be a U.S.-approved mechanism, or do you want INSTEX to be a European mechanism for European independence? These are two drastic choices, and they have nothing to do with Iran. It's Europe. Whether Europe, in exercising its own policy, depends on US approval or depends on European approval. Mm. This is a choice for Europe, not for us. But
0: a puzzling thing, for me at least, uh, is that if Europe is very important for Iran now, why have we observed that Iranian citizens have been subjected to, not Iranian citizens, but Iranian uh, uh, people from France, Netherlands, Denmark, of Iranian origin have been subjected to terrorist plot in Europe. I find that a bit uh, surprising, isn't it? Will it be somehow more to please Europeans rather than create these
1: frictions? Well, uh, first of all, you are assuming that Iran has been behind that. Uh, We have said very clearly that Iran rejects terrorism in European soil. We are the country that has fought terrorism uh, in areas that... uh, have direct impact for Europe. Uh, Had it not been for Iran uh, sacrificing its young people uh, against uh, Daesh, uh, then you would have had to deal with Daesh in the streets of Europe. If you're doing that, if you're preventing drugs from coming into Europe, uh, sacrificing our uh, young people, uh, if we are preventing refugees from coming to Europe, uh, hosting three million refugees ourselves, uh, it's, it's awkward to believe that Iran is engaged in acts of terror in Europe. To me, at the same time, Europe has to think about providing safe haven to known terrorists. people. Who have killed over 17,000 Iranian civilians now reside in Europe. People who engage in a terrorist operation and claim responsibility for a terrorist operation that killed kids, they made that announcement from Denmark. They made the announcement of a accepting responsibility for a terrorist operation in Denmark. People yesterday were demonstrating outside anywhere I go, were threatening, they even had a number of my colleagues beaten in Sweden. They are members of a terrorist organization which was on the list of states of organi- terror organizations in, in the EU and in the United States. Now they're free to terrorize Iranians in Europe. There are movies that they portray. People who came to see me in Sweden were harassed as they were walking to come to the residence of our ambassador in Sweden. They were harassed by these hooligans. This is happening on European soil. These are all European citizens. Those who are harassing are European citizens. Those who are being harassed are European citizens. So if there is a question, the question should be why Europe is safe haven to known terrorists? Why Europe is safe haven to organizations that have claimed terrorism from European soil? Would Europe accept if we did the same? Would Europe accept if we allow Al-Qaeda to operate in our territory? Would Europe accept if we allow Taliban to operate from our territory? Would Europe accept if we allow Daesh to operate from our territory? You wouldn't. You would be raising hell about it. But same groups, same individuals, same organizations, people who supported Saddam Hussein when he was gassing the Kurds are walking in your streets under the protection, and now they accuse us of plotting against them, and you simply repeat them. No accusation against Iran has been proven in any place, no, not even a, a, an indication is there. I'm telling you, this gentleman went on television from Denmark claiming responsibility for an act of terror, and he's still walking under, under Danish protection. This is a this is a criminal act that needs to be responded to. Second, but not necessarily by Iran. What? If it's a criminal act,
0: don't. No, you no, trust we the don't. European no. We don't. No, you. To no,
1: it's it's your responsibility. I said right. we have said that we condemn any terrorist act on European soil. We will not accept it. We will not condone it. But what you are doing right now in Europe is not only condoning but providing protection to those who are charged with terrorist crimes in Iraq. They're given police protection, they're given security protection in in France, in in Denmark, in in all the countries you mentioned. They're there and are given protection. One, One more thing. We want to have good relations with everybody. Not just with Europe, with everybody. Our preference is to have good relations with everybody. But we will not sell our sovereignty for good relations. And you repeat that I'm coming to Scandinavia. I was invited to come. As I'm going to, as I was in in the region, and I'll be in Asia next week, and I'll be elsewhere the week after, that's my job. Now, the United States designated me uh, in order to prevent me from doing my job, but I will continue to do my job. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. <laughs> uh, you brought up the issue of,
0: of, of shipping and maritime security. So on a normal day, I think around thirty Norwegian controlled vessels are sailing in the Persian Gulf. Around one third of them are flying a Norwegian flag. And in May, one of them uh, was subjected to had some at- attack, one out of the four in Fujera. And then uh uh, was uh, attacked by some kind of mines uh, in uh, July. And in this preliminary report to the UN Security Council on the Fujairah attacks, the investigators say that th- this was a sophisticated and coordinated operation carried out by an actor with significant operational capacity, most likely a state actor. And they go on and say this was, it was a deliberate selection of oil tankers. Um, out of many vessels they pe- picked these four. So, Mr. Serf, is Iran behind these attacks? And nope. why do you think Norwegian vessels were picked, if they were picked?
1: Uh, first, uh, Norwegians frequent these waters more than others, so just probability is that they will be uh, targets of any, op- any uh, incident in, in, in these waters. There is a war going on, uh, my friend, in the uh, in the region. Uh, United Arab Emirates is engaged in a war in Yemen, and there are counterattacks. I'm not sure whether people who uh, engage in those operations were Yemenis, but there are clear signs that there is enough hostility in the region. Iran can, in fact, prevent these attacks. But we have no incentive to do so. We're not engaged in those attacks. But if you want security in the Persian Gulf, and we've got to be very clear and frank with each other, you cannot have security in the Persian Gulf without Iran. People are trying to have security in our neighborhood by trying to make us insecure. Then we won't have any reason, any incentive to spend money and to spend human resources to provide security. Mm. Then these incidents happen. It well, doesn't mean that Iran is, is doing it. It's simply enough for Iran not to do what it does on a daily basis to provide your ships with security. And you'll see what happens in the Persian Gulf. No, No matter what amount of naval vessels from outside come to the region, the more naval vessels come from outside, the more crowded this water will be, the more dangerous it will be for, for uh, commercial ships.
0: OK, thank you so much. Now we, we open the floor for for, uh, for discussion. Please raise your hand and identify uh, yourself, and then uh, Osman and somebody else have a microphone here. So, uh, there first.
2: Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Johan a journalist for the Norwegian news agency, NTB. So, Foreign Minister, I I would like to ask you, and you know that Norway is now contemplating whether or not to join an international military presence in the Persian Gulf. Um, What what will your message be to Norwegian authorities today? Uh, How do you view this plan, and what would the likely consequences be if
3: Norway decides to join?
4: Thank you.
1: I think military presence in the Persian Gulf will not make Persian Gulf more secure. Historically, military presence in the Persian Gulf has made it less secure and has escalated tension in the region. And there is no reason this time it would be otherwise. There are much less expensive ways of doing this, much more uh, affordable and uh, confident ways of doing this. And the best way is to ensure security and freedom of navigation for everybody, and Iran will be a major partner in doing that. Uh, you see, it is clear that the intention of the United States to have this naval presence in, uh, in the Persian Gulf is to counter Iran. So if, if there is a naval presence in the Persian Gulf whose purpose of being there is to counter Iran, you don't expect us to remain quiet when somebody comes to our waters to threaten us. We're not in the, f- in the business of threatening others, but we never submit to threats by others. My suggestion would be there are far better ways, far, far better ways. Those countries that depend on the Persian Gulf for their livelihood, and President Trump has announced that the United States is not one of them. He said, we don't need the Persian Gulf. OK, they don't need the Persian Gulf, so they can get out of the Persian Gulf. The rest of us who need the Persian Gulf can secure the Persian Gulf. And I can assure you that the source of insecurity in the Persian Gulf is the United States, not vice versa. OK, Kristel. Thank you. you.
0: Please
3: use the microphone. Thank you, Your Excellency. Always a pleasure listening to your analysis. Christian berg from the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. Uh, I've had the pleasure, multiple times, of visiting KUM and interacting with uh, Iran's uh, rich intellectual re- religious community. And I'm curious, in this particular situation, if you could give us some insight into the nature of the uh, domestic debate not necessarily only in the religious domain, although I have a particular interest in that, but uh, in political circles and amongst uh, the public at large. And if you allow one second question, as you know, I'm somebody who's uh, been very interested in Afghanistan and Afghanistan's fate. and currently we are in a situation where your host here, Norway, is also following Afghan peace negotiations uh, very closely. I'd be interested to hear from you What do you think Iran's major contribution to the unfolding peace process in Afghanistan could be? And uh, under the current political standoff, what it would take for that uh, to materialize? Thank you. Well, uh,
1: your first question on the debate that is taking place in Iran. We're very happy that Iran uh, is not a monolith. Uh, even our religious community is not a monolith, and you have experience in that. There is always lively debate going on on, on almost every issue, uh, from human rights to music, whether music should be allowed, how, how much of music should be public. Uh, any, any subject that you can imagine is being debated in Iran on a daily basis, both on, in terms of philosophy and in terms of politics and in terms of legislation. Uh, we have a lively debate uh, in Iran, uh, and a normal democratic process at the end of these debates. It goes to the parliament for voting, and uh, sometimes legislation that we like don't get approved by the parliament, sometimes legislation that we don't like get approved by the parliament. Uh, this is this is the nature of, of the situation. and. Uh, people should lo- look at it the same way as you look at uh, your own parliament, in, in, in your own parliament not always uh, decisions that everybody likes are, are approved, whether it's on taxes or on social issues or on other issues. Uh, uh, we have a different system, but at the end of the day it's, it's whether the majority accept a view. Uh, and it makes a difference. Uh, I usually tell my Iranian compatriots, just compare the three presidencies, President Khatami, President Ahmadinejad, and President Rouhani. It makes a difference. The choice of the people makes drastic difference in Iranian policy. So that debate goes on. Uh, now we have a very uh, politically charged year. Uh, we have a, uh, a parliamentary election early. Uh, next Christian year, but that will be the end of our uh, Islamic year. So it is, uh, it is a highly charged political year for us to be followed by another highly charged political year pre- preceding the presidential elections. So we will have a lot of debate and uh, questioning in, in Iran. On your que- second question on Afghanistan. Uh, We welcome the fact that Norway is trying to play a constructive role. I brought our special representative on Afghanistan to this trip, and he's been uh, talking to Norwegian authorities and and exchanging information and experience. Uh, I think Afghanistan is at a very crucial uh, turning point. Uh, It is important that the achievements of the international community and the Afghan people since 2001, be preserved in the next round, not be destroyed. If it's destroyed in the next round, that is, if the democratic institutions in Afghanistan that were established in 2001 in Bonn are destroyed, if the democratic constitution of Afghanistan is destroyed only in order to provide the United States a good opportunity to simply escape from Afghanistan, then it is a major disservice to the time, money, and blood of many Afghans and non-Afghans, which have been uh, sacrificed for a different situation in Afghanistan. I don't want to go into the details, but we believe the approach that was taken by the United States to uh, uh, to arrogate to itself the responsibility of negotiating with various Afghan groups without the presence of other groups. That was the problem. We We also talk to Afghans. We also talk to the Taliban. We have uh, serious relations with the Taliban, but we never negotiate about the future of Afghanistan with one group without the presence of another group. If you want to negotiate about the future of Afghanistan, it has to be Afghan-led and Afghan-owned. And this is the the, the principal operating uh, line of the government of Norway in its next uh, attempt to host the Afghans, and we welcome that, and we are providing uh, our experience and our advice on, on that issue.
0: Okay, thank you so much. I see lots of hands up there. And now it's uh, Sveidre. Could we uh, collect two? And then it's Tove uh, over there. So we had two questions, but just one per person, Christian. <laughs> Iran has um, 15, <laughs> 15,
5: 15 neighboring states counting uh, borders at sea, as we should. Only one country has more. Russia has... Uh, uh, 16. And in the larger geopolitical picture, you are diplomatically active in all directions, all main directions. Indeed, uh, Iran has a lot of foreign affairs, and you are probably one of the busiest uh, foreign ministers in, in the world. Uh, but so far, um, direction west has been the main direction of your uh, uh, foreign affairs. Now suppose that um, the United States remains uh, hostile, and that the Europeans do not deliver, uh, which is a fair assumption. Would that make you reorient your for foreign affairs, downgrading relations westwards, upgrading relations with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, others? Um, what is the national political sentiment in this respect, and what do you expect?
0: And then uh, collecting also another colleague of me
6: from the My name is Kjetel Selvik, I'm a researcher here at the Institute. Uh, I want to go back to the regional dimensions of, of our title, The Risk of War and the Persian Gulf, because it occurs to me that there's a, there's a c- clear regional side to the current tensions. It's not only about the United States. You yourself have referred to the B-team, uh, leaders of... Um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. Now, my question is: If you, from your perspective in in Tehran, perceive that these leaders, these countries, are actually pushing for war. Secondly, um, the recent developments from the United Arab Emirates of diplomatic overtures may be a changing of position in Yemen. How do you read that?
0: okay so one on the regional dynamics and one on the general orientation of foreign
1: policy in uh, iran on on the western orientation of iranian diplomacy actually iran uh, for a very long time had an eastern orientation of its diplomacy Uh, during my time in office i tried to balance the orientation of our foreign policy. Uh, It wasn't necessarily Western orientation. With all due respect to our Western friends, uh, there was uh, uh, an issue of necessity. Uh, I did not negotiate with the United States because I loved negotiating with the United States. I negotiated with the United States because the Security Council had mandated that we need to negotiate with five plus one in order to terminate uh, Security Council resolutions. So it was not a choice, it was a requirement. But we lived up to that requirement, and we did negotiate, and we showed that we don't have any dogma against negotiating with anybody. So I wouldn't call it a Western orientation. Uh, Now, Iranian businesses may be Western-oriented, but the, that orientation is changed. Uh, Iranian businesses are now doing business mostly with China, but more than that with neighboring countries. As you said, we have fifteen neighbors, and we have. Uh, we are the biggest trading partner for Iraq. We are one of the more important trading partners for Afghanistan. Uh, our trade with UAE and with Turkey uh, are. We do 35% of our trade with Turkey in our own currencies and we have set-aside dollar. Our trade with India uh, is extremely important, and China is our biggest trading partner. So the nature of our even business transactions and the direction of our business transaction has changed over the years, and now we have very little uh, interaction with Europe very little interaction well i mean uh, this has been something that we have learned uh, that uh, some of our eastern partners are more reliable than our western partners and that is why we have moved uh, to east but that doesn't mean that we have now an eastern orientation of foreign policy we have a balanced orientation our doors are open to anybody who wants to engage uh, with with uh, with us. National sentiments are moving against engagement, uh, because uh, uh, JCPOA was the best uh, indicator of the success of engagement, and as we cannot show uh, much result for JCPOA, then the mood for engagement in the public is moving and is moving in in a direction that I do not believe is healthy. But it is only a reaction to what we have suffered over the past uh, four years. On the regional dimension, um, when I refer to the B team, I believe that the United States foreign policy uh, is being misdirected by those who do not have the best interest of the United States in mind. Uh, And President Trump, uh, maybe reluctantly, is moving in that direction. President Trump, as you pointed out, does not want war. But there are people within his administration and outside his administration and even outside the United States who want nothing more than war. Uh, and the uh, direction of the policies that they are dragging President Trump into would be actually to drag him into something that he doesn't want. His entire perspective is to change the liberal international order. And that is what I told you about uh, the trend that will be affecting. But. Those individuals have an immediate interest in countering Iran and in dragging President Trump into war with Iran. Now, sometimes he, at the end of the day, like the previous military operation that he was just about to be dragged into, he decided to withdraw because he learned from us that this would not be the end but the beginning of a confrontation. But sometimes accidents happen, sometimes planned accidents happen. There is a theory that those attacks against the ships were planned accidents trying to drag people into a war, there were other planned accidents which we averted in the region. So it's a bit complicated, it's a, it's a complicated picture. but. Our interest in regional security is paramount. When I assumed office, the first article I wrote was not in the New York Times, but was in Sharq al awsat in Arabic, for our neighbors. And in that article, I proposed a regional dialogue. Now, in proposing a regional dialogue, I'm trying to follow uh, the European example of the Helsinki process. Actually, I went to Helsinki three years ago, participated in the Helsinki Peace Forum, and presented my ideas about how the experiment of Europe could be replicated, modified and replicated, in our region. That is principles and confidence-building baskets. And those confidence-building baskets can include environment, tourism, uh, economic cooperation, military transparency and can end with uh, non-aggression pacts between countries in the region. Or if you believe a purely functionalist approach will not work in our region because of the primacy of security concerns, then we can start uh, in in the reverse order. Start with a non-aggression pact, which I recently announced in Baghdad, that we can start with a non-aggression pact and then work out the confidence building area so that that primary security concerns of the countries in the region would be overcome. Now, one major caveat for any security arrangement in our region is the difference and divergence in size and power. Usually smaller countries would be terrified uh, about their future because of the fact that they know that without foreign assistance, they won't be able to Uh, withstand pressure from their larger neighbors. This is not just Iran, but even within the GCC. You know the relations between Saudi Arabia and other members of the GCC have not always been the most peaceful relations. So the way to address that, because if you try to purchase security from outside, then you start another dynamic that would be counterproductive to regional security. The way to deal with that is to have an international umbrella, for any security package in in our region, and fortunately we already have that international umbrella. There is a Security Council resolution that was adopted in 1987 uh, to bring an end to the Iran-Iraq war, and that is Security Council Resolution 598. That's a Chapter 7 resolution. And it has two remaining operative paragraphs that have not been implemented, Operative Paragraph five which calls on external powers to uh, refrain from actions that would ex- uh, extend uh, or exacerbate tension in the region. And in response to your question, uh, sending military fertilis to the, to the Persian Gulf would be in violation of paragraph 5 of Y98, uh, in addition to being counterproductive. And then there is a paragraph 8 of that resolution that talks about uh, a regional security arrangement. We are ready for that regional security arrangement under a Security Council umbrella, which uh, allays the concerns of smaller states in the region. Hmm. Okay.
4: Hello, my name is Tove Gravdal. I'm a journalist at a weekly newspaper called Magimblada. I have two um, short questions. So first of all... Yeah. Uh, given the U.S. sanctions against you personally, are you confident that you, can, you are able to attend a high-level meeting at the U.N. headquarters in September? And how, how do you feel the sanctions in other ways? And uh, secondly, given what you said, that you are now traveling the world to uh, promote Iran's views on uh, international affairs and, and the regional situation, uh, it sounds – it doesn't make sense that at the same time, given the importance to get your message out, given the importance uh, to communicating with the world, it doesn't make sense that you are barring uh, the New York Times correspondent uh, Thomas Edbrink from uh, working in Iran. He has been barred by Iranian authorities since February to do his job in Iran. He speaks Persian, and he and his wife are not allowed to, uh, to perform their profession in Iran right now and uh, given his balanced reporting from iran it's in contradiction with with what you what you say is important for iran to get the message out why is he barred from doing his job and will he get his accreditation back in the near future
1: well uh, that's not uh, my decision uh, on uh, mr erbring uh, it's a different agency that issues Whatever uh, permits for journalists foreign journalists to operate uh, they have concerns about these activities but uh, we in the foreign ministry have been trying to ease that situation in connection with the New York Times and and others and uh, we hope to be able to find a resolution to that uh, countries have, Regulations and laws and press uh, press passes are not issued by the foreign ministry. On on my designation and UNGA, uh, uh, the designation is primarily designed to prevent me from uh, engaging in diplomatic activities, uh, because it has no other impact on me. I don't have any property outside Iraq, so the designation will not deprive me of any financial benefits. Uh, so, and the only thing I do, basically, is I talk. <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's the job of diplomats. Uh, as Churchill said, it's much better to ja-ja <laughs> than <laughs> to, to fight. So this is what diplomats are supposed to do. I don't carry any weapons. I don't engage in any violent action. I don't even know how to shoot. Uh, So why is it that the United States has found it necessary to designate a diplomat, a career diplomat, somebody who has done nothing in his life other than teach and talk? And teaching is talking mostly. (laughs) That's why I'm I'm a bit more more talkative than some of you (laughs) want to. Okay, we we have uh, it. But but, uh, uh, about UNGA, the United States has an obligation based on headquarters agreement to allow uh, diplomats to represent their country. They put the I mean the most severe restrictions on on Iranians Um, for forty years. They've been putting that when we go to New York. We can get a single-entry visa, even when you live in New York, as I've done as a permanent representative. You cannot leave 25-mile radius of, of New York uh, center without permission, and they never issue those permissions. So you are limited. Now we are limited to three buildings, basically, in New York. UN headquarters, our, um, our mission, and our residence. So three buildings. Last time I went to New York. I was limited to those three buildings, but to the chagrin of Secretary Pompeo, I conducted five interviews from those buildings. So uh, I can do my job. Uh, Even if they don't let me go to the United States, I have requests to do interviews in Tehran with ABC, NBC, CBS, CNN, uh, whatever abbreviation you can find, I can have uh, interviews with them from Tehran. So I don't think the United States can shut me up if that's their intention.
0: OK, uh, next question, Could, collect uh, two, one there, and then
2: Thank you very much. <coughs> Thank you very much, Minister. It's always a pleasure to listen to you. Good. We like you to talk, uh, apart from uh, the other problems. Uh, the question that I was planning to ask was partly addressed, uh, the gentleman from the, uh, I forgot to introduce myself. I am Turkish ambassador here. Uh, in Oslo. Uh, My question was partly asked by uh, uh, by our uh, colleague from the NUPI, and you addressed this, the regional dimension, but I would like to put it in a uh, more um, uh, updated uh, version from the perspective. Uh, You uh, you know how uh, worried we were when uh, the Qatar crisis, as, as it was called, we had to Uh, step in to help uh, Qatar vis-a-vis the other GCC uh, uh, countries. Now, uh, the regional dimension as you addressed, and you you gave the background that uh, uh, you are the one asking for the dialogue, but I think that at this very specific moment, uh, also with uh, relation to the Yemen uh, conflict, There is a very clear uh, chance that you can improve your dialogue with the GCC countries. Uh, You have the ability to influence everything uh, for the better uh, in uh, Iraq and in Syria. And you have the same ability to influence the whole Arabian Peninsula. Uh, As the Yemen war showed us, that the other inner uh, sea, uh, that the Red Sea, uh, is also very important in terms of the stability. Of the, uh, of the whole world. So I think that the current dynamics inside the GCC, considering Qatar's case, considering uh, Omani's being uh, nuanced in many uh, issues, and considering uh, the divergence in the policies of uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates vis-a-vis Yemen that uh, are recently being observed, I think it's a very interesting time for you to not only passively uh, 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 telling the others that we, we should talk. Maybe you, you can do something active. So you can do something to, uh, to improve the situation uh, wherever you can. And then uh, you can claim uh, the, uh, the same to be shown by the uh, USA and other uh, opponents uh, that you may see. Thank you very much. Well, okay. thank you,
1: Ambassador. This is a very good suggestion, and I believe uh, Iran and Turkey and Russia have shown that, in fact, through regional diplomacy, you can be successful I- in ending uh, major conflicts. Uh, when we started the Astana process, uh, nobody believed that Astana process could lead to de-escalation in Syria. I remember. Uh, I'm uh, in, in in Davos because Astana process was announced in January or December and there was a meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos and I was the only uh, foreign minister of the three Astana uh, parties there and I, I I was almost encircled by everybody who believed that Astana would not get anywhere but now Astana is the only successful uh, process that de-escalated in Syria and hopefully we will get to a political process. Now we only have one outstanding member of the Constitutional Committee uh, in order to start the constitutional process in Syria, and many people believe that this would never happen. Uh, of course, we had a full package last uh, November, December, but because of the push from uh, four countries the Secretary-General was not able to approve that package, so now we have uh, we are working on another package. Uh, so we are actively involved with our Turkish friends and with our Russian friends, and I'll be happy to go back to, to Turkey uh, in two weeks' time with, with the presidents of the three countries for our next summit. And I believe one of the top issues on our agenda is to uh, try to prevent the bloodbath in Idlib, which will be the last bastion where the terrorists have their backs against the wall. We resolved other issues in, in Syria by sending uh, these extremists to Idlib. Now, if we want to resolve the situation in Idlib, there is no place we can send these extremists to, mm. and that's what makes Idlib probably the most difficult not to crack uh, in, in the Syrian situation. But we will work with our with our friends. Iran and Turkey work together in order to prevent Qatar from being suffocated. Now, Turkey and Qatar had very good relations. We and Qatar had very serious differences over Syria. But we stepped in. And without us uh, opening our space and opening our ports to our Turkish friends and, our, uh, and also to our own uh, businesses, Qatar would have been suffocated. Mm. We, we went to their help because we believe that the region... We are a status quo power in the region. We believe that change in the, any change in the borders of the region... Would be dangerous. Now, Iran, Turkey, and others have an interest in dealing peacefully with the Kurdish situation in the region because it can be a source of instability for all of us. So these are issues that we can deal with. Then in the Persian Gulf, as, as the ambassador pointed out, we have considerable influence uh, in Yemen, and we're interested in ending the war in Yemen. Well, let me tell you a story. When I became foreign minister, I sent a, a suggestion to my late friend, Prince Saud al faisal that we can engage with you on Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, uh, Yemen, and, uh, and Bahrain. Uh, and I told him that we can do it either on diplomatic level or even on intelligence and uh, an operational level. Uh, and we can accommodate each other, because there is no reason we should fight. And in the fighting between us, the people in these countries will be affected. I got a four-word reply: Arab world is none of your business. (laughs) Now we see whether Arab world is any of our business or not. We, I mean, uh, we have the upper hand in most of these cases. Now we're open to Saudi Arabia engaging with us. But last time that there was a meeting on Yemen in Stockholm, ambassador the foreign minister of Sweden called me and asked me to intervene in order to have the Yemeni Houthis attend that conference. And I did intervene, and I did bring them to to Stockholm. But my special representative on Yemen was disinvited from coming to Stockholm because Saudi Arabia had said that if Iran is there, we will not come. I never insist that Saudi Arabia Should be excluded from any meeting. In fact, I insist that Saudi Arabia should be included in any meeting. But if they want to continue to insist that Iran should be excluded, then they should pay the price. We are not asking for Saudi Arabia to be excluded. We're not asking for Saudi Arabia to suffer in the region. We're not asking anybody to fight against Saudi Arabia. We're not paying people to bomb uh, Saudi uh, cities. They are paying people to bomb Iranian cities. They are paying people to vote against Iran in the United Nations. It's interesting for, for those of you who are advocates of human rights to know that Saudi Arabia is the main financier of the, secu- of the General Assembly resolution against Iran, it's a human rights resolution. Saudi Arabia goes to every and each country and pays them, helps them in order to, and or uh, threatens them with the cutting of aid. If they don't vote against us in in, in in human rights, and Saudi Arabia is the same country that used the chainsaw against the journalists. Okay. If, if a reminder was needed.
0: Uh, time is running. Lots of hands. Uh, Cicel, and then uh, the two of you, uh, very quickly, and then you, uh, Minister. That's a have difficult to be question ve- a to a ask short. a professor to Sorry. be
1: to be short. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: Yes. So very brief. Yes. uh, One question only. Yeah, good
7: question. (laughs) Uh, My name is Issyl Wall. I work for the Norwegian Broadcasting, and I've been following Iran for years. So uh, of course Donald Trump seems to have put the world upside down and with uh, a new world order, as you say, and with grave, grave consequences for Iran. So the impression is that Iran is keeping some restraint, uh, sending you out to talk to the world explain the Iranian position and analyzing what's going on. Uh, And the impression is that this restraint is going to be kept to see what will happen in the next U.S. election, to keep it, to manage the situation while Donald Trump is still in power. Uh, Are you preparing for a scenario if there will be another four years with Donald Trump, or are you just trying to manage the situation while he is in office with his uh, uh, Pompeo and Bolton uh, or do you also see you know a scenario after Donald Trump if he will be re-elected we, we
1: never based on our, we never base our foreign policy on events that we cannot control and our expectation is that we may have another four years of Donald Trump so we don't plan and I don't think anybody should uh, try to wait him out. You should do whatever you want to do with Donald Trump in his first term because in his second term he will be worst. Mm. Okay, over here.
4: Oh, from the Norwegian Business Daily. Um, I was wondering, how likely do you think that uh, it, it is that there will be a war between Iran and the US?
1: I think it is extremely unlikely because we don't intend to engage in a war, and I think the United States uh, has had its experiences with the war since Vietnam, and none of them have been very pleasant for the United States. So, and President Trump has been on the record uh, that he does not want to get into a war. But I can tell you that there are people who are actively promoting war. There are people who are actively trying to instigate a war. The people who are actively trying to trap Donald Trump into a situation that he cannot escape a war, but we all need to exercise prudence in order to prevent that eventuality.
0: OK, and then the next one.
1: You see, I'm being very restrained even in Yeah, you're
0: very good. Do you have a ten minute or seven minute r- response? And a very pointed <coughs> two minutes, uh, <laughs> one minute. So uh, Very good. <laughs> uh, Mr.
3: Zeritz, thank you for giving the opportunity to ask a question. Our nervous in the is from Reuters. Could you speak up, please? Uh, yeah louder yeah that's no, okay a, can you hear now yeah yeah, yeah. okay neuro uh, is from Reuters I understand that you're going to, to meet uh, French president macron on Friday and he has said that he made a proposal to Iran uh, to uh, to compensate or, or the sanctions or, or or some sort of other mechanism to relieve uh, uh, the situation in exchange uh, for Iran uh, Coming back f- or fully complying with uh, the with, uh, with, uh, with the with the with the previous agreement and uh, and uh, uh, agreeing to negotiate on a you know broader broader issues. What what is your response? To well,
1: uh, I can say that we've had ongoing conversations with uh, with uh, President Macron at the level of uh, our of the two presidents. Uh, there have been many. Telephone conversations between the two presidents. President Macron uh, has made suggestions, and we have made suggestions in return. Uh, I'm looking forward to having a serious conversation both with President Macron and with my friend uh, Laudrian about uh, possibilities uh, to move forward. Uh, We have always been open. Uh, to engagement uh, with uh, our uh, remaining JCPOA partners. Uh, We are discussing the details. Uh, Obviously, uh, we believe that JCPOA was negotiated and agreed upon within the framework of the nuclear uh, situation and the uh, gives and takes uh, that are in the JCPOA are clear. Uh, we cannot increase the gives uh, in the JCPOA on Iranian side. We have not taken any benefit from the JCPOA. Certainly, nothing over the past uh, 15, 16 months since U.S. withdrawal. So we need to engage, and we are prepared to engage. There are proposals on the table from Iranian side, proposals on the table from the French side, and uh, we are going to work. On those proposals uh, tomorrow when I meet with President Macron.
0: Uh, for Mr. Zadief, thank you so much. I see time is running out. The lots of you have wanted to engage in this conversation, but I see time is flying. And I know that you have a busy schedule. We have some other important people to meet as well. So na- and now it's. Uh, That's 10, the maximum time uh, that we have. Uh, yeah, I think so. And we stretched it even further. Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and perspectives and for sharing your time. Please join me in in thanking uh, the foreign minister.
1: Thank you very much.